0: We're going to dive into God's Word together and I'm going to start by talking about roundabouts. I don't know how you go with roundabouts, but if you know me at all, you know that traffic sometimes triggers me a little bit. Um, And you also know that I I believe that uh, traffic and the way people drive is sometimes a really good indication of human nature because if you're paying attention, you see some wonderful things on the roads. You see some courtesy, you see patience, you see thoughtfulness, you see carefulness, you see a lot of great things, but occasionally you do see those things that are not so great as well. And if you're like me, and Carolyn does help me to see that quite often, um, what you tend to comment on a note, are more the negative things rather than all those um, overwhelmingly positive things. So I, I tend to be, have, a, have, a, have a jerk radar. What are they doing? You know, Don't they know the rules? That kind of person. Now let's be honest for a minute. Does, is anyone in a family with somebody like that? Okay, so I'm not alone. Excellent to hear. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about roundabouts because uh, as you'll see they're quite relevant to the topic that we're discussing about discipleship today. So just imagine... You're leaving here in about, I don't know, four or five hours' time, and you're turning left onto That must have been realistic because no one kind of responded. Uh, You're turning left and you're coming to this roundabout on Baradale and New Cross here, okay? So can you picture yourself? You're pulling out. What are you doing as you approach the roundabout? Okay. You don't have to answer out loud, but just think about that. Okay, so if you're like me, you're going to be checking down the road: is anyone coming? How fast are they coming? Is it safe for me to go into the roundabout and either you know go around to the right or chuck a lefty? That's what's going to be happening, and you're going to do that safely and well. Now, let's just imagine now that you're somebody else who's cruising uh, down Barradale Drive from further south. Maybe you've been down at the park playing a bit of cricket or whatever, and you're heading north to Whitford Ave. And somebody who's leaving church pulls out into the roundabout ahead of you. You're coming along, and you have to slap on the brakes because This clown has entered the roundabout right as you're about to enter the roundabout and go through it, and you were on their right. So what should they have done? Oh, really? Ah. (laughs) How many of you in that moment might be internally waving the fist and say, Idiots! Don't you know how to drive? Guilty, all right, guilty. But what does the law actually say? It doesn't say give way to the right, does it? No. It says... Give way to the vehicle that is already in the roundabout. Hmm. Now, on a big roundabout, you're always giving way to the right because it takes a while for people to get around. But on a little roundabout like that, there's every chance that somebody might have gone into the roundabout and you come up to the roundabout, they're already in it, but they're on your left, actually. And you need to give way to them because they were there first. Now, I know that law. And so as I look down Barradale Drive, as I see somebody hacking up the street, do I just pull out and go, oh, it's all right, they've they've got to give way to me, I was here first. (laughs) No, I don't do that. Why? Because if I do, I'm going to get cleaned up. So I actually drive not according to the laws, but I drive according to the way I know other people drive, because that just makes sense. All right. Now, I'm just giving that one illustration, because now that you've got me started... I could talk about a lot more examples of how that works on the roads, but I think we've all experienced that. We might know what the law says, or we might not actually know what the law says, but you're used to just doing what people do, and that's the way that we drive, and that's the way everyone hopefully drives. And when somebody steps out of what everyone should do, then we kind of get a little bit aggro. I saw a video uh, during the week where exactly that thing happened. Somebody was tearing up to a roundabout. Somebody entered the roundabout first, as they're allowed to do. This person had to break and was, you know, carrying on, give way to the right, give way to the right, give way to the right. And they couldn't stop and listen to what the law actually was because they were so determined that they were correct. And, you know, that happened to Jesus too. As far as I know, it didn't happen at a roundabout uh, because I don't think they were a big deal in first century Israel. But it did happen with the interpretation and the application of God's laws. You see, Jesus, unlike any other human being who has ever lived, always obeyed God's law perfectly. He knew the law better than anyone. And he's the only person who have ever pulled off living by God's ways consistently every time. And as we think about Jesus and as we're exploring uh, the topic that we started last week of how Jesus uh, became a rabbi and called disciples... And, George, you might need to click on the proclaim for me so I can get control back. Brilliant, thank you very much. Uh, As he called disciples, there were some ways that he went about doing that that were a little bit like a a vehicle pulling out into a a roundabout when they have the right to, but others don't think so. And some of the other rabbis and leaders and people generally were just saying, you can't do it like that. And Jesus was like, oh, yes, I can, because I know the law better than you do. And we're going to explore some of the ways that Jesus might have upset some people, but he always did exactly what God wanted to have happen. So we're going to focus today on some things that Jesus affirmed. Because when Jesus was going through uh, uh, his ministry, there was not everything he did conflicted with the way things were being done around him. And not everything he saw others doing was wrong. And he affirmed a lot of what was going on in their community, a lot of good things that were going on amongst the religious community and in how rabbis were teaching and training people God's law. There was a lot of stuff that he affirmed. And we're going to explore some of that today. But there were some things where, just like uh, that confrontation on the road, where temperatures got a little bit raised and Jesus had to point out, you know what, not everything you do, is actually in keeping with God's law. You've become accustomed to some ways of doing things that if we step back and talk about this and think about this, you might discover aren't actually what God intended when he gave us his laws. So let's dive in and let's uh, look at some things that Jesus affirmed about how in those days rabbis would uh, call disciples to follow after them. Now, you might think of a rabbi... Oh, my clicker is still not working. Gee, it's not just the PA system that's giving us some grief today. George, you're going to have to be following along with me, bud, and uh, (laughs) this will keep you on your toes. There were some things that uh, Jesus affirmed about the way that they were uh, calling disciples. Now, a rabbi we might think of as a teacher of God's laws, um, but that's not the whole story. See, the word rabbi literally meant great one or master. They had a very exalted position in the community. They were enormously respected. And there was a huge amount of competition to become a follower of a great one, to become a follower of a rabbi and to learn from him so that one day you could become like him and even become a rabbi yourself. And so the first thing that was expected of anyone who wanted to learn from the rabbi and become part of his discipleship community to eventually become one was you needed total commitment. So if you were here last week, you might know the story of what this might have looked like, but um, when a young boy who was uh, one of the brightest and best students in their schools, uh, if they had the desire to do that, if their family had the means to enable them to do that, uh, they might uh, become discipled by a rabbi at the age of 13 years of age. So he's become a man, and he's now become a man who is following a rabbi. He's leaving his home, and he's becoming totally committed to his rabbi. Now, I'll keep going with this in the hope that one day it'll work. Here we go. Uh, So you might remember there was one such person, his name was Saul of Tarsus. His family was from Tarsus, apparently quite wealthy, uh, and they sent Saul down to Jerusalem to become a student, a disciple of a rabbi whose name was Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis at that time. So at the age of 13, that meant he left home and instead of being known as Saul, son of, and I don't even know how to finish that because we never hear what his parents' names were, he becomes known as Saul, the disciple of Gamaliel. His identity changes, his, his uh, lifestyle changes. He becomes completely wrapped up in Gamaliel's school, following Gamaliel around, going wherever Gamaliel travels. Um, his life is now completely committed to his rabbi, Gamaliel. Check out this uh, next slide. It's got a, a tradition about what that transition looks like. Uh, we'll go one more. Thanks, George. Uh, This is uh, from the Talmud, which is uh, a record of the traditions that were being taught uh, by the rabbis. When one is searching for the lost property both of his father and of his teacher, his teacher's loss takes precedence over that of his father, since his father brought him only into the life of this world, whereas his teacher, who taught him wisdom, that is the Torah, has brought him into the life of the world to come. If his father and his teacher are in captivity, he must first ransom his teacher. So you're getting the idea there. So uh, let's just say Josiah, um, after hitting 13, had gone off and been uh, made a disciple of somebody else. Uh, And me and that other person both were taken off into captivity. And I'm there going, gee, I hope Siah's able to pay the ransom. Well, guess what? He would ransom his rabbi, his teacher, before he ransomed me. Because his first loyalty isn't to me anymore. It's to this other guy. That's fairly confronting, isn't it? Um, But that's just the expectations. That's the way things worked back then. So how did Jesus fit with this idea that when a rabbi calls disciples, those disciples owe more allegiance to him than to their own natural families? Did Jesus mesh with that or did he say, well, that's going a bit far. We don't need to be too fanatical about this. Well, let's read it from Jesus' own lips. From Luke chapter 9, verse 57, we read these words. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Which is what a disciple does. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Let's keep rolling through that. Thanks, George. Then he said to another, Follow me, Lord. He said, uh, Follow me. Lord, he said, First let me go bury my Father. But Jesus told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Again, pretty full on, huh? Let's keep rolling. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Pretty confronting. Now we get to Luke 14. Let's see if uh, anything's changed. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's talking about total commitment, isn't it? Uh, and it's really interesting there. Um, if you just flip back to 25, thanks, George. Notice there were great trouts. So there were a lot of people who are really interested in what Jesus has to say. There's a lot of people who are seeing Jesus do some miracles and maybe needing a miracle themselves, and they're flocking to Jesus, and they're not just coming for, for the day and then going home. They're, they're actually wanting to follow him around, which is what disciples do. And Jesus now makes it very clear, hey, it's a different thing being a member of a crowd to being a follower. And if you want to be a follower, if you want to be a disciple, you've got to know that the level of commitment, it's not just come and listen and think about it and just see what you reckon. This is you have bought in, you are totally committed now. You got to know up front, that's what I require. And it looks like this. Now, when we see uh, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, we read that quite literally, and we know what hate is like, and it's ugly, and we think, is Jesus really calling us to hate our own families? Not in the way you're probably thinking of right now. Uh, It's talking about a comparison, um, and it doesn't translate well into English, but the idea, I think, makes sense. If you were to think of it as in, okay, now you need to make a choice. Is it going to be me, or is it going to be mum and dad, wife and kids, brothers and sisters, in fact, anything in your own life, which are you going to be committed to? Which are you going to put first? If it comes down to a choice, which way are you going to go? And that term is really pointing out that it can be no contest. It's got to be Jesus. Um, I watched a a movie and I'll tell you a bit more about it later on, but one one of the lines in the movie uh, is where this guy says to a girl he's quite interested in, um, if you ever get between me and God, it's over. Um, and it's, it's exactly that kind of attitude. It's where, hey, God comes first. Um, or in this case, it's where Jesus, if I want to follow you, I know you've got to come first. I can't be in and out and in and out depending on the circumstances or how I'm feeling or you know anything like that. Once I've decided that I'm following you, that's it for me. That's what I'm doing. That's the commitment that I've made. It's pretty full on. So let's keep rolling through that. Thanks, George. Whoever does not bear his own cross, that symbol of shame, uh, and, and just the worst thing that people could be identified with. Uh, and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and can't finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if it should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So back in the day, when Jesus was ministering, there was this idea that if you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, you had to forsake everything else. You had to go and live with that rabbi. You had to devote yourself completely to that rabbi. That was the standard. And Jesus comes in as a new rabbi who didn't go through the typical path to becoming a rabbi, as we thought about last week, but he is nevertheless a rabbi in that culture. And he says, yeah, that's right. That's what it takes to be a disciple. And he affirms what was common practice at the time. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it is going to take total commitment. And for those who thought they could kind of be like the crowds, uh, he said, no, you can either be part of the crowd, you're welcome to do that, but if you want to be a disciple, total commitment is what it's going to take. You've got to consciously choose, I'm more important than your family, your possessions, your ambitions, your comforts, anything else about your life. And we might hear that and go, steady on. Maybe if we ease into this a little bit or something, but to require that commitment up front, that doesn't seem sensible. You're not going to get anyone following you if you have that kind of expectation. But in Jesus' culture, if he was to expect anything less, that would have been scandalous. Remember, the rabbis at the time chose only the very best. There was such competition to become a student of a rabbi, and the purpose of that was so that you could learn so much from that rabbi that you could become one yourself. And you're not going to learn everything that you need to learn by doing it half-heartedly. You've got to be all in. And the community is not going to have the kind of leaders that it needs if it has half-hearted leaders. No, they've got to be really serious that they want to know God's word and that they want to be able to teach God's word and they're going to be able to live God's word. They need that kind of leadership. So the community expected discipleship to be a really serious thing. If Jesus asked anything less, he wouldn't have been respected as a, a true rabbi. If Jesus expected anything less, they'd have the attitude of, okay, so what you're saying is you don't have anything that's worth giving up all of this for. He would actually be devaluing his ministry and what people could learn from him. But Jesus instead affirms their understanding of what it means to be a disciple, and he says to them, I don't just want crowds. I'm actually inviting everybody to make this commitment to become a disciple. Well, there's another thing that uh, Jesus affirmed about the culture of discipleship, and that is, and it flows on from that idea of total commitment, uh, that is an idea of total obedience. John 14 verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus expected his disciples to be as obedient to him as it was normal for disciples in that culture to be obedient to their rabbis. And if you want to go on a very long uh, kind of side trip, uh, check out Deuteronomy 17. It has a lot to say about obedience to those in authority, and they would use this as a way of teaching that, hey, you don't have to agree up here. That's what crowds do. I'll come along, I'll listen, I'll see what I think about that, and if I agree, I'll do it. If I don't agree, I won't. But once you've decided to be a disciple, you've decided ahead of time, I will obey whatever this man says. Um, And I don't need to agree with it. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to compare it to what somebody else says. If the rabbi tells me something, I'm going to do it. You decide that ahead of time that you are going to be completely obedient. And what's the value of that? The value of that is that you learn by experience, not by prejudgment. So you're coming in as a student and you're trusting that the rabbi knows what he's talking about. And as a rabbi says, do this, not this, and you're going, well, I really think I should do that, not that. How are you going to learn whether the rabbi is right or not? Well, people like you and I might say, well, we'll make our own mistakes and we'll learn from them. But in that culture, no, you do what the rabbi says. And as you do it, you go, ah, now I get it. Now I see what I couldn't understand at first. But now that I've done it, as Jesus would say elsewhere, I've tasted and seen that this is good. So they expected that attitude of total obedience. Again, in our culture, where we've seen so many abuses of power, we we hear total obedience and we go, oh no, that just can't be good. But in that culture, that was the best way to learn. And Jesus actually affirmed that in his disciples, that idea of being totally obedient to him. In fact, in Luke 6, again, talking to the crowds and helping the crowds understand, hey, there's a big difference between being a member of the crowd and being a follower. This is what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? I'll show you what someone is like who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed. And the destruction of that house was great. So Jesus is pointing out hey, if you want to be a disciple of mine, yes, it does require total obedience. Don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. It doesn't make sense. Either I'm your Lord or not. So if you're going to be a follower, Obey what I say, but here's the good news. When you do that, this is what you discover. When you live according to the things I'm telling you, no matter what storms life throws at you, you'll be okay. You'll get through it because you've learned to live according to my truth, and that'll stand you on solid ground. If you hear that, and no matter how much you agree or disagree, and just don't do it, when the storms of life come, they're going to throw you for six. Um, because you haven't actually built your life on a solid foundation. Trust what I say, do what I say, and you will be better off. That's the promise of Jesus. You're better off being a disciple than you are being a crowd member. If you're like me, it's like, I don't know, I'll be the judge of that. I'll choose which bits I take on, which bits I don't. Jesus, doesn't work. If you're going to be a follower of me, obey all that I say, not just the bits that you think are going to work for you. And trust me, says Jesus, this will be the only way that it works. Here's the last thing that Jesus affirms about the culture of discipleship as it was back then. Emulation. So it's not just doing what the rabbi says, it's actually watching how the rabbi lives and copying, asking questions. Why did you do it like that and not like this? Um, observing, uh, reflecting, analysing. But basically you're being so observant that you want to take on the lifestyle of the person that you chose to follow as a disciple. Emulation was why they spent so many years living, uh, in a sense, in in the rabbi's pocket. Um, They would share life together. They would travel together, eat together, uh, pray together, uh, sleep in close proximity to each other. They would just do life together, and that was how a lot of the learning... Took place. In fact, if you read the Gospels, uh, you see that as Jesus is interacting with people, often he's just noticing what's going on and he's either doing something about it that people can observe, or he's explaining some things that are starting with life and bringing God's laws into life. It's about paying attention to what life is actually like when you live according to God's laws. He affirmed that discipleship requires this. There was this one rabbi, uh, and it's a famous story about this time in history, and he walked with a limp. Um, And he had some disciples who followed him around, which was normal for rabbis. Um, And they would watch the way he greeted people in the marketplace, the way he taught people, the way uh, his attitude was, and and how he conducted his marriage, all of the things that they would learn from their rabbi in. And it was said that as they uh, imitated this particular rabbi, not only did they imitate him in all those other ways, but even his mannerism of walking because he had a limp, they just started to do subconsciously because they were so intent on becoming like this guy. Um, now, don't feel like you ever have to kind of try and imitate uh, your, your um, spiritual leader's kind of physical mannerisms, but there's this idea of paying so much attention, and isn't it a cool thing? When you see things where people are modelling great stuff, when you take that on for yourself, that's a really powerful thing that can uh, help you to become a follower of Jesus. Um, Jesus said this again in Luke 6, though. He told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. We've been shaped by so many influences. We, we, we follow people around whether we know it or not. Think of your family of origin, think of your peer group, think of role models that you've had, think of authors that you read, think of movies that you watch. We're always following and copying after other people. Romans 12 calls it the pattern of this world. We just follow (laughs) the way things are, like roundabouts. Why do I look down the street instead of just going, that's all right, I'm here first, I'll keep going? Because I'm used to the way things work in the culture that I live in. And I know that if I don't follow that pattern, there could be some ugly consequences. So we are naturally used to just going with the flow and following people around even to the extent of you know sometimes we fall into the same pits that other people have fallen into if you look at the stats on what families are like for people who claim Jesus as Lord and those who don't uh, if you look at the lifestyles of people who wear the badge Christian and those who don't sometimes they're not as different as you think they ought to be why is that well because it's like the blind guiding the blind we naturally just follow around and do what other people are doing Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, it's not meant to be like this for you guys. A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Those guys who followed Jesus around and became like him, they were different to what anyone else had ever seen. In fact, we read about it in Acts chapter 4. If uh, we could skip to that one, thanks, uh, George. Uh, And this is when Peter and John, a couple of guys who had been fishermen, but they'd spent time with Jesus... Uh, they'd had a confrontation with the religious leaders and, uh, and explained what they were about. And, and the religious leaders had this observation. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realised that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognised they'd been with Jesus. And that's the point. Now, these guys, they hadn't gone all the way through school like some other disciples had, had done. Uh, they didn't have the credentials academically. But when you look at their lives, say, man, they have been copying somebody worth copying. That's the emulation part of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, in, um, if we go to the next slide for me. Thank you, Jordan. Doo, 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 doo. Alrighty. When we look at the way Jesus called people to emulate him... Actually, if you could go... Uh, no, we'll stay on that one. As, as we think about who it was that got the opportunity to emulate Jesus... Uh, Check out what it says in Luke chapter 8. Afterward, he was travelling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, called Magdalene, uh, seven demons had come out of her, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. So as we think about... Can we check the slide on that says the three things? There we go. As we think about the three things that Jesus observed about discipleship, uh, there was this requirement for total commitment, there was a requirement for total obedience, and a requirement for emulation that people would want to become like their rabbi. And we uh, encounter that and go, oh, okay, so not sure how I feel about that. Now we're going to hear what Jesus critiques about how this was looking in his culture. And the very first thing he critiques, as you think about, okay... I'm a rabbi, I'm going to call some disciples. I'm going to call people to total commitment. Who am I going to call? 13-year-old boys, all right? That's, that's who you call to be a disciple. The best and the brightest of the students, you're going to get them and you're going to mould them from a young age so that they become the kind of leaders that our nation needs. Who does Jesus call? Fishermen. Probably a fair bit older than thirteen. We don't know, uh, but they haven't made the cut. They're not. They're, they're not the top of the the waza in terms of the academic kids and the ones you want to be your disciples. Um, he's calling people who missed that. So that's going to offend the rabbis. Who else did he call? And we just heard about women. Yeah. Um, In that day, that that was scandalous to include women among your disciples. And we know that for those who are following Jesus, it took some getting used to. Remember Mary and Martha's conversation? Uh, Martha's like, hey, Mary, you're meant to be out here with me. And Jesus like, no, no, she's actually allowed to be a disciple. She's allowed to sit at my feet and learn from me. And uh, we read in Luke 8 about some ladies who travelled around with Jesus, which is what disciples did. And as you heard Jesus in Luke 6 and Luke 14 talk about earlier, when Jesus saw some people following him, he made it really clear, hey, guys, know what you're signing up for here. You are committing to something serious if I allow you to follow me around. And he allowed these people to follow him around. So he had male and female disciples. Right, so that's, the, again, not usual, not normal. So anyone who wanted to be a disciple, didn't matter how academic you were, whether you'd gone through the normal pathway, anyone male or female, children, they weren't following along and becoming disciples, they weren't allowed to leave home yet, but he welcomed them into his, his group as well. Jesus accepted everyone to be his disciple. And that was very, very different to the culture around him. Uh, let's continue the next slide, thank you. Uh, oh, back one, thanks, George. When we think about total obedience, uh, Jesus, yes, he, he asked for total obedience, but was he standing kind of from the, the pulpit or you know, some, some lectern somewhere and just telling people what to do? What did he say in that verse we read earlier? If you love me, you'll obey what I command. So he wasn't an autocratic ruler like many of the rabbis of his day, ordering people around because they had the position of authority. He actually said, hey, if you love me, why would they love him well it's because of who he was because of how he invited them into something it's how he treated them he built a relationship of love with these people and that's what motivated their obedience it wasn't this pounding you will do what i say kind of deal it's hey when when you love somebody and you know that they love you when you trust somebody don't you want to obey what they say? Isn't that how it works? Jesus modelled a very different kind of obedience. What about the emulation part? Uh, Did Jesus require his disciples to emulate him? Yeah, clearly. He'd just been talking about that, um, how a disciple, when he's fully trained, will become like his teacher, and that's how they changed the world. It wasn't because they had better Bible knowledge. It was because they'd been with Jesus and they'd become like Jesus, and they did what Jesus did, and that's how they became life changers. Now, I'm going to think uh, a little bit about uh, one other thing that really was different in the way Jesus approached discipleship. See, back in the day, if I was a 13 year old boy and I wanted to become a great one, if that was my ambition, I want to become a leader. And it might be for very good motives I want to make a difference, I want to help people follow God, or it might be because that's the position I want to be in. I want to be the top of the tree. I want to be the one that's greeted in the marketplaces, that gets the good seats at the wedding feast, that everyone says, Hi, Rabbi, I want to be known, I want to be important. Maybe that's my motivation. This is how I get there. I've got to commit to total... Or oh, back to that one, George. I want to commit to total commitment to a rabbi. I'm going to obey him and I'm going to become like him. And if I do that well enough at the age of 30, I get to become a great one myself. And from that moment on, people have to be committed to me. People have to obey me. People will be trying to be like me me be like mike i like the sound of that all right so so there's a there's an objective if i do this for long enough well enough i get to stop doing it so much and other people do it for me brilliant and that motivation as you read the gospels you can see in the life of the religious leaders jesus is calling it out all the time this has become about you fellas it was there for a good reason But it's become about you and your ambition. What did Jesus model? Jesus modeled that this is not the pathway to greatness that everyone in their culture thought it was. That's not the pathway to greatness, that's the expression of greatness. See, Jesus showed that even though he was the great one, he did all that. And he did it better than anyone. He didn't have to stop doing it, he kept it up. He had total commitment to who? To his father but also to his disciples. Think about that for a minute. Remember all the stories of the gospel. Who who was more committed, the disciples to Jesus or Jesus to the disciples? It's a no contest, isn't it? You look at what he did for them. You look at how faithful he was even when they messed up time after time. There There is no competition. He is more committed to us than we can ever be to him. So make sure you know that he, the commitment he he's got that one hands down. What about the total obedience? Was Jesus obedient to his disciples? No, he was obedient to his father, perfectly. So he was. Who would you say was more obedient, Jesus to his father or his disciples to Jesus? Not really a competition, is it? So he's showing that more than his disciples did. And what about the emulation part, the becoming like your teacher or leader, the great one? See, even in that, Jesus did it more than his disciples did. And this is where that next verse comes in. Thanks, George. In John 5, we read, "'Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, "'but only what he sees the Father doing. "'For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. "'For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, "'and he will show him greater works than these, "'so that you will be amazed.'" Jesus, in the similar way that he's asking his disciples to pay attention to his life and to respond to that and be a part of what he is doing, he's saying, well, that's what I'm like with the Father. It's exactly the same deal. Um, and he is doing that better than we could ever do it for him. So in all these different things, again, George, if you could have those on the screen, in all of those different ways, Jesus wasn't inviting people to do this for a while until they become you know, up there enough that other people will start doing it for them. He's saying, hey, if you want to be great, that's how you do it. That's, that's not how you get great. That's how you are great. And Jesus showed that in every aspect of his life. If you were here last week, we uh, talked about the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And again, beautiful example of this. This is the kind of person you ought to be. Um, great people can do that kind of stuff because they're not worried about how other people are committed to them and obedient to them and learning to be like them. They're just doing what great people do, which is be like God, be obedient to God, uh, be totally committed to God. And he's demonstrating that stuff. And I watched a movie during the week, and I mentioned it earlier, uh, called The Jesus Revolution. And uh, picture this room, um, and let's, let's pick on you guys over here, um, who are much better dressed than the guys over here. Let's just say... Uh, these are the people who have been in church for a long time and you know, they, they dress their Sunday best which is what they've been used to doing um, and, and they're sitting on that side of the church. Over this side are the hippies. So we're going back a few years and the hippies have come in, they're unwashed, they're un, unshoed um, and uh, so, so there's this kind of thing of eh, this isn't a real easy fit. Um, and the deacons come to the pastor, uh, and they say, oh, this isn't going well, and they have a list of complaints about the pastor having allowed these hippies into the church and changing the style of service and doing all this kind of stuff. And uh, one of the old deacons says, and they're staining the shag carpet with their dirty feet. And he's right, they are. These guys don't wash very often and they walk everywhere barefoot and they, so they're walking in with their dirty feet and you've got this lovely new shag carpet and it's getting dirty and, and that's not cool. And so off the deacons go and next uh, Sunday um, this old guy rocks up to church and there's a great long line of hippies waiting to get in. Oh, great, these guys again. Um, and he walks past them to the front door and he sees the reason for the delay and why the line is so long. The pastor's there with his bowl and with his dishcloth in his tower and he's washing their feet before they come into the building. Um, just v- a very Christ-like thing to do. Um, and of course some of the, the people, some of you guys walk in <laughs> um, because they're saying these guys haven't really prepared well enough to come into church whereas the pastor's like, no one accepts accept you as you are and he's doing what's needed. And they get to a point where there's an ultimatum and some of the guys on this side, sorry to say it, stand up, look very disparagingly at these guys over here, the great unwashed and out they go, we're not going to be a part of this. And this old deacon who was concerned about the new shag carpet being you know, grubbied by these guys, he stands up and he walks out into the aisle. But he doesn't go for the doors. He walks across to the hippies and he sits down in the midst of them. They put his arms around him. And the thing I love about that scene is the smile on his face. It's like, yeah, this is actually church. This is what I want to be a part of. See, for some of those guys, the the way that they'd been doing things had become so important they'd lost sight of what God really says about how to treat people, how to welcome people into his family. Uh, And in that moment where a choice had to be made, at least one of them had his initial reaction, a bit like me driving down the road, what are you doing, that's not how to drive. So stuff's going on and it's getting him angry. But when he's confronted by it, he goes, yeah, actually, I'm in the wrong here. Uh, I've missed the heart of God. I don't really know what God's law is saying to me and I'm the one who needs to change. And he makes that change and he becomes part of this wonderful community where people are experiencing the goodness of what God is really like and how God really asks us to live with one another. And it's beautiful and it's messy and everyone's making mistakes. You know, they're not right and they're not wrong. It's, it's well, hey, We've got to figure this out. Um, but they're doing it, keeping their eyes on the main thing. How do we become more like Jesus in this? How are we committed to him, obedient to him, wanting to be like him? What would Jesus do in this situation? And when that's your focus, the kind of community that you build together becomes amazing. Just as we close, I want to assuage your fears if this is a concern for you. When we talk about discipleship looking like this, I want to be really, really clear. It's never to a human being that we owe total commitment, total obedience and that desire for emulation I will never ask that of you and if I do give me a good talking tea because the only person who is worthy of that kind of discipleship is Jesus the only person who can be trusted unlike the rabbis of his day not to abuse that and to become a bit great in their own boots the only person who can show how to truly be great is Jesus so let's make sure we keep them mind. Let's not put anyone on a pedestal that only Jesus belongs on. But let's put him on that pedestal together. And let's help each other become imitators of Jesus together. Because that's an awesome thing to be a part of. Let's pray.